his battle axe, 17 army units down in one fell swoop. The army that emerges from this process must be a forward-looking, modern fighting machine, remaining best of its class, respecting the past and honouring its proud history, but looking resolutely to the future. But will the army still be the best? The Defence Secretary has announced what's being called the biggest shake-up in the British Army for a century. The government's commitment to saving 20% of the defence budget means there will be cuts, but cuts to units and battalions, not to entire regiments. In headline terms, there will be 17 fewer major units as a result of this announcement. These reductions will fall across the various arms and services of the Army. Philip Hammond has given details of those being cut in the New Look Army with a total reduction to 82,000. 39 Regiment Royal Artillery, 24 Commando Engineer Regiment, 28 Engineer Regiment and 67 Works Group will be withdrawn. In the Army Air Corps, 1 Regiment and 9 Regiment will merge in preparation for equipping with the new Wildcat helicopters. In the Royal Logistics Corps, one and two logistics support regiments will be withdrawn and 23 Pioneer Regiment disbanded. 101 Force Support Battalion Remy and 5 Regiment Royal Military Police will also be withdrawn, with 101 becoming a reserve unit. The Defence Secretary stressed mobility and its ability to react rapidly in the New Look Army, but that means a reduction in the Armoured Corps from 11 units to 9. The Army has decided that this will be achieved by an amalgamation of the Queen's Royal Lancers with the 9th, 12th Royal Lancers and a merger between the 1st and 2nd Royal Tank Regiments. There will also be changes to the infantry, with five battalions being scrapped, all in multi-battalion regiments. 2nd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, 2nd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, 3rd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment, and 2nd Battalion, the Royal Welsh, will be withdrawn from the order of battle. In addition, the Royal Regiment of Scotland will see one battalion reduced to a single company. Philip Hammond says the rethink makes sense, acknowledging that the need to save money is one of the key factors. I am also very clear that the army that emerges from this process must be a forward-looking, modern fighting machine, remaining best of its class, respecting the past and honouring its proud history, but looking resolutely to the future. The FBS reporter Tim Cooper has spoken to Lieutenant General Nick Carter, the author of Army 2020, and he asked him why he decides to do what he's done. Well, you have to go back to first principles. Um, I mean, the Army was asked a very difficult question um, back in July of last year when it had to downsize its regular strength to 82,000 and uprate its reserve strength to 30,000. And you have to look at the whole proposition. And what we did was to go back to first principles, as you so often do when you're confronted by a difficult question like that. <clears throat> and we then concluded pretty quickly about which bits of the army were going to go to the reserve and which bits were going to stay in the regular structure, so that we've ended up with this integrated model. There'll be some people watching as service personnel wondering, well, why have I been singled out, if, as it were? Um, yes, I mean, the answer is if you're going to reduce the regular strength by some 20%. 
it's inevitable that all parts of the army are going to have to take a share of that pain. Um, nobody wants to see the downsizing that we've had to do, but the fact of the matter is that's what we've been directed to do by the government. What's your message to personnel affected by this? The answer is that um, what we've got is a, a new and imaginative and an original structure which is designed to meet the challenges of the 2020 era. Getting there will be challenging. Um, there are going to be further redundancies. There's going to be downsizing. Units will be removed from the Army's order of battle and merged and amalgamated. And there will be some uncertainty associated with all of that. And none of this happens very quickly. It will be a gradual process, which is targeted at 2020. And it will not be easy. But the fact of the matter is that the Army will be focused on its task in Afghanistan. And as it increasingly comes off that, it will have good things to think about, good tasks to fulfill, and it will be well-resourced to achieve those outcomes. You mentioned that you've done what the government has required you to do as, a, as an army. How much political input was there into the process, in terms of interference even? Um, none at all. We were given the opportunity to look at this from first principles, which I did with a small, dedicated and talented team. And we came forward with a series of options, which were then presented to ministers. And in the normal run of business, there was then ministerial direction. Um, the Defence Secretary said today morale is already fragile within the army, particularly those based here and in Germany. This is going to dent it even further, isn't it? Um, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and, of course, uncertainty often can be um, transposed into people suggesting that morale is fragile. But I suspect if you went to Afghanistan and talked to people in Lashkagar or Naris Siraj or Nadi Ali, you'd find that their morale was very positive. They're doing a high-quality job, and they are firmly behind it. Aside from the units directly affected today, this is about a structural reorganisation of the army, the reaction force, the adaptable force. Why was that chosen upon as a model? Um, well, first and foremost, um, we're required by defence as an army to deliver high-ready forces to meet the defence policy requirements that we have. And our view was that that would be done by a predominantly regular force, the reaction forces, it's been redesigned so that it's probably better structured for the threats that we think we'll encounter in the future. And what we also realised is that so much of the influence that the government would wish to us to wield overseas needs to be performed with partners in upstream capacity terms, in terms of engagement overseas. And our view was that the rest of the army, the adaptable force, would be the construct that would be able, as a pool of forces, to be able to deliver forces to do those sorts of tasks. Now, that's not to say that they are different parts of the army exclusively, because individuals will move back and forth, experiences will be shared, and indeed units may move back and forth from time to time. So it's not a twin-track or a two-tier army. It's a multi-rolled army that is being organised for the tasks and challenges of the future. But it could be perceived as a two-tier army that the reaction force at the pinnacle of it and, and the other side of it making do with reservists. Yeah, I think you need to look at the sort of political spectrum. I mean, the way I think we see the army being used in the future is the adaptable force is probably doing the upstream task with allies, indigenous forces, and developing their capacity. In the event that that particular region requires more input from our forces, you might see the reaction forces being deployed in support of your adaptable construct, with obviously much better understanding of the region that will have been designed and created by the adaptable force. And then, of course, once the situation has been stabilised, it's the adaptable forces that inevitably would be there at the back end, doing the downstream work, the downstream capacity building, and keeping that sense of persistent engagement throughout the spectrum.
That was Lieutenant General Nick Carter speaking to our reporter Tim Cooper. Well, our reporter Jeff Mead has been looking at the announcement in detail. Hi, Jeff. Uh, can you explain the main changes to the structure of the army? Well, despite what the Defence Secretary said to the Commons, I don't think we can call it a pony and, show, a pony and dog show military, but it is intended, he said, to make Britain's army the world best in class. Uh, we can debate what that actually means. But uh, as we've heard, the regular army is going to be cut by a fifth, the reserve strength roughly doubled, and that it will form this sort of three-stage configuration. This is what the army will look like post-Afghanistan when Britain is still fiscally challenged and facing an uncertain future. We'll have that reaction force, which will mainly consist of regulars. Uh, Its role will be rapid intervention, conventional deterrence. It'll consist of three large, well-equipped and trained armoured infantry brigades, and they'll all be held at high readiness. So that's the sharp end of Britain's uh, army. Upstream, as it's put. As he put it, yes. Behind them is this uh, what's now called the adaptable force. Uh, that will do the, the, fulfil the more long-term, known-about standing commitments, uh, the Falklands garrisons, Cyprus, ceremonial duties, homeland security. And that's where this much greater involvement of the TA and reserves will, will come in. They will have a very uh, uh, meaningful and significant role in that adaptable force. The third leg of the tripod, if you like, uh, will be the support and specialist elements uh, which are needed and, and in fact, will, uh, will will spread across to both the reaction and the adaptable forces. So that's what the army will look like by about 2018. The timescale is pretty tight, although it's called 2020. They hope to have this in place much earlier than that. All right, Jeff, thank you. Well, I'm joined now by former Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mike Jackson, and, of course, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, General Jackson, if I can come to you first, what do you think of the decisions announced today? Well, we've been here before, um, although in my time as the CGS, it was only 2,000 reduction required. 20,000 is uh, a pretty fundamental figure. We must remember that the resources envelope is not defined by the army. That is defined by the government. But uh, it is for them, of course, to come to their political judgment about risks, costs, and um, defense of the realm as a whole. When it comes down to working within that defined envelope of resources, I think the army has come up with a very innovative and elegant solution for a world where uncertainty will not reduce. Arguably, uncertainty may well increase. And it's got a balance to it, it seems to me, uh, whilst being able to meet the demands put upon it by the Strategic Defence Review, the ability to uh, uh, be able to, to deploy on a number of operations, perhaps simultaneously at small scale, rising up to um, after perhaps some organization time, a a divisional um, deployment. So um, I think um, we're going to have a a very interesting army by 2020, 2018 indeed, if if that last comment is actually uh, brought into reality. And still an army which, in in my judgment, um, offers uh, people coming into it um, an interesting, exciting, and um, um, I think very good future. Indeed. I was going to ask you that, General. Do you think the army is still as good a place to work as it was when you joined? Um, It's a very different place to work when I joined, which is 
so long ago I can hardly remember. Um, uh, that was the depths of the Cold War, my goodness. Um, the world has changed radically and fundamentally since then. Uh, it's this balance, it's this ability to be agile, to take circumstances as they come, and to have an army structured so that it can respond properly and appropriately to whatever set of circumstances. Indeed, indeed, much is made of this agility. Do you think this new army will be able to handle anything that's thrown at it? Well, anything um, covers um, just about anything, doesn't it? Um, what it is, I think, within that resource envelope, within the numbers which have been defined, the structure proposed, uh, as I say, gives that balance and flexibility uh, for whatever the army may be asked to do in the future. And uh, unfortunately, none of us know that. And so the deduction is to be as balanced and um, flexible as possible. And um, that, I think, this new structure achieves. Uh, Christopher Lee, of course, we never know what's around the corner. You argue, though, that these this kind of reshaping could have been carried out 10 years ago. I think it might have been certainly anticipated uh, even further back than that. You see, General Mike says, you know, when he joined the army, because he's so old, he can only remember there was a Cold War on. But the point is, we've moved on from the Cold War, haven't we? And that's when you start rethinking... Uh, what sort of army you want in the future because you have really, in theory, the army ought to go to the government saying, okay, uh, times have changed, what do you want us to do after all, after after Afghanistan? We don't have, again where General Mike served, a Northern Ireland on our doorstep. So we may not know what sort of what, what uh, wars or, or firefights we're going to get into, but we probably can judge what we're not going to do, what we're not going to have to do anymore. So it, it when people sort of get excited and say, oh, well, isn't it, isn't it a shame about cat badges, etc., etc.? that and covers the issue. And what we're not going to have to do being a long, long campaign like Afghanistan, Well, it may be, example. but the point is, once you get rid of it, people get rid of this argument, oh, you cat badges, etc., isn't it terrible, and, uh, and the history of it. Uh, you know, let's be realistic. You want an army that is efficient, that you can expand if necessary at any one time, um, but an army that is capable of doing what you, the government, think your ambitions might be in the future, and therefore the army is there with the other two services to support government policy over the next 20 years. Somebody in government ought to be thinking, I assume they are, what sort of things are we not going to be doing, and therefore leaves us with the sort of capability that we may have to, have, have to call on. Jeff Mead, uh, just talk us through what's been announced today, specifically about units and cat badges. Yeah, details on the webpage, but to give you the sort of main uh, units which are uh, affected, uh, there's been some adroit political fo footwork here because the Prime Minister apparently insisted that no cat badges would disappear. He didn't want to sever what I think the military call the golden thread linking soldiers today with those who served in illustrious units in history. Um, but nevertheless four battalions are being scrapped. They're the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, the 2nd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, that's the Greenhounds, currently in Cyprus, uh, the 3rd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment, that's the Staffordshire Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Welsh. Now the 5th Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland, because I think given um, the politics there, there was uh, extraordinary sensitivity about not touching the Scottish regiments. They will be reduced. They'll remain, uh, their cat badge will remain, but they're reduced to a, a single company uh, to form, uh, pub perform public duties at Holyrood and Edinburgh. Um, 
That's the infantry onto the Armoured Corps. They'll be reduced by two units with the mergers of the Queen's Royal Lancers and the 9th 12th Royal Lancers and the 1st and 2nd Tank Regiments will also merge. Uh, the ten other principal units to go include one with the Royal Artillery, three from the Royal Engineers, one Army Air Corps, three from the Royal Logistic Corps and one of the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers and one from the Royal Military Police. General Jackson, for those people serving in units which are affected by today's announcements, how will they be reacting? Well, it, um, people are human and, of course, to be told um, the team to which you uh, are a member uh, is uh, to go is, is, of course, a blow. Um, but I also note uh, that um, just because if you're in a particular unit which is to go, it doesn't mean that you go. Um, the redundancy uh, program, I think, is much more sophisticated. Indeed, and the Defence Secretary was very careful to, to, to mention that today, that it was running very separately. Yes, um, the, there are two issues. Um, first of all, which units must now leave the order of battle? Secondly, which individuals must now leave the army in order to come down to the 82,000? They are different things. And in terms of the Scottish regiments, uh, largely untouched, is this a political decision then, trying to head off those uh, who want Scottish independence? Well, you say largely un untouched. I, I think that is probably um, a slightly erroneous way of looking at it. Um, the Royal Regiment of Scotland... Uh, um, is a five-battalion large regiment, uh, and that was instituted uh, in the 2004-05 exercise when I was at CGS. Um, of those five battalions now in the Royal Regiment of Scotland, one basically goes. Uh, there will be a single public duties company um, which uh, remains. So I think it's um, erroneous to say Scotland, quote, got away with it, a phrase I've heard a bit. Um, not so. Um, but of course, um, we should not underestimate the rather delicate political nature of um, matters Scottish with a possible referendum for independence on the horizon. All right, General Jackson, stay with us. Uh, we've had some reaction to the news on Twitter today. Philip Goodfellow says this is a terrible decision by the government. Britain's armed forces need to be boosted, not cut to a bare minimum. Uh, you can join in the discussion by tweeting us at BFBS Sitrep. Well, later on, we'll be joined by Catherine Spencer from the Army Families Federation for a look at what this means for the soldiers affected. But first, let's talk about the TA. The cuts to the regular army mean that there'll be a greater reliance on the terror Territorial Army. Uh, Jeff, explain. About uh, 15,000 strong is the current deployable strength of uh, TA and reserve forces. Uh, the government is intending to double that. Now, that puts the uh, part-timers, I know they hate being called that, but military people who are also civilians, um, in very much the American model where society is much more closely enmeshed with the army um, and doing a stint in the reserve is seen as very much uh, the, the, the normal thing thing. But the problem that we have, uh, the government will face, I think, is recruitment, because it's already difficult to keep TA units uh, up to their manning levels. Um, the 
Secretary of State talked about a new deal for reservists, and that is something that I've spoken to reservists of Royal Wessex Yeomanry only last month. They were very concerned about this. Uh, they had a willingness to deploy uh, more often and for longer, but what they want is legal protection for their jobs. You know, it's a, a time of great economic uncertainty. Um, try saying to your boss that I'm going away to, for, for six months and I may be doing the same again in a couple of years. It's going to, without, without legal underpinning, that might make people very vulnerable uh, who want to serve in the military in that way and indeed will be required to as part of this new structure. Um, there's a consultation paper going out in the autumn and I think we can expect legal changes next year to make the TA uh, soldiers' position much more secure. All right, Jeff, thank you. Uh, well, let's hear from Colonel Richard Williams, former SAS commander who contributed to the report Future Reserves 2020. Colonel Williams, thanks for your time today. Um, is there going to be enough... Uh, are there going to be enough people that you can recruit from the TA for the job they're going to be asked to do? Well, that's certainly the plan. Um, as with uh, Future Force 2020 or Future Force 2018, whatever the, the, the target end date is, this is a development uh, plan. Um, and uh, what the plan recognises is that the reserve forces, of which the TA is but one part, can play a bigger role than they have done thus far if resourced, organised and led well. And is it a better use of them? Um, well, the uses uh, of them haven't been specified as far as I've seen uh, in detail thus far. Um, but in general terms, uh, the idea that the reserve forces are able, in the one instance, to hold on to capability that otherwise would be disbanded, uh, by which I mean tanks, heavy artillery and so on, that would, in the worst scenario that we would have to face, need to be called up again, is a pretty efficient use of um, their, their, um, their power uh, and their resource. Secondly, um, their ability to contribute to homeland security deployed routinely as they are uh, through drill halls around the country um, is of great advantage uh, to national security. And then thirdly, the ability to be called up um, as potentially formed units, and that's certainly what I would uh, recommend, uh, to complement the work of the more rapid reaction forces as operations become more enduring, is already a proven concept, uh, but needs to be enhanced. And then finally, the ability of it to provide specialists, which it does do now, uh, to complement the military you know, full-time soldiers' uh, capability uh, on operation is proven. So um, I see it as a good thing, uh, and I see what they've done as not a substitute um, uh, in, in the simple terms as often presented for regular forces, but as a complement to them. Do you see any potential problems in the future, conflicts with employers who may not want to let good staff go? Well, this is the work that's ongoing at the moment. I mean, the Reserve Forces study identified the need to ensure the relationship between employer, individual and military uh, is locked down in some way uh, so that the individuals that go off to serve their country don't then lose their jobs and the employers that are um, recruiting the excellent individuals um, who benefit from uh, military training and military operations don't then have um, a significant uh, um, downward effect on the businesses they're running. Christopher Lee. Um, Colonel, I'd just simply like to know, what was the research method that allowed you to give the Secretary of State a figure of 30,000 potential reservists? 
The um, first the sort of point of correction with respect to the Reserve Forces study, and um, I'm, I'm delighted to be associated with it only in as much as General Graham Lamb and I um, did some work on Reserve Forces before SDSR, is I wasn't, uh, I wasn't formally involved in the actual Reserve Forces study itself. Uh, General Graham Lamb went on and did that, working to General Horton, who again represented the Army. So the specifics of actually how they researched this, uh, that's up for, the, for that body to answer. Because if you come back to, if you go back to the original discussions on this, when things like NELCO, National Employers Liaison Committees, and TAVA existed, they always believed that with the with the way society goes, fifteen thousand was probably a maximum ambition in from the TA that you could ever get hold of. Um, again, uh, with respect to understanding the logic that underpinned that conclusion, you know, I'd need to see it myself. Uh, the general view um, that, that we subscribe to was looking across, say, other nations, Australia, Canada, America, and so on. Uh, the general feeling was that actually far more could be done with the nation's military potential if organized right. I think, you know, when trying to pull uh, elements of society into a part-time military, one of two of the things you've referred to already are absolutely critical to make sure it can work efficiently. And again, the relationships with the employers and the legal underpinning is critical to that. All right, let's, let's bring in now Captain Doug Beater, former regular soldier and now a reservist. Doug Beater, thanks for your time today. Is this plan going to work? Well, I think <coughs> I think this plan's got to work is is is, is the main thing, um, but I think it's a good plan um, uh, and it does create agile forces. Uh, as far as the TA is concerned, uh, the Territorial Army do understand the pressures that the MOD are under, financial pressures. Uh, they do understand that the government has ordered this withdrawal, uh, sorry, this drawdown of uh, regular forces. We know that they're cutting in. They're not cutting away the fat, they're cutting into the muscle of the regular army. And the TA do know that they have to step up uh, and assist yeah. and integrate with um, uh, the regular forces to, to, to give us the, the, the capabilities in the, in the future. You say they know they need to step up. Are they good enough? Are they going to be good enough? Well, well, well they are, but, but you know, you've got to look at this in, in, in several ways here. Right now, we have a regular army who are doing absolutely everything. They are doing firefighting when there's a firefighter strike. Um, they're doing flood defences. They're doing absolutely everything. They're doing up Olympic security uh, while at the same time preparing for operations in Afghanistan and preparing for contingency operations. This is a time where the TA can step in and help out. And I'll give you a very simple example. Operation Tosca is a UN peacekeeping force in Cyprus. It's a very simple, though important task, and the TA can take that on. Uh, last year, I was involved as a TA soldier in short-term training teams to Uganda to train soldiers, the um, Ugandan People's Defence Force, uh, for going to Somalia. Uh, and that took the pressure off regular forces to do that. The same can be said for the Falklands Reinforcement Company. So uh, this is not about TA soldiers replacing regular soldiers. This is the per working in harmony um, to create a capability. You talk about working in harmony. What is the relationship between the regular army and the TA? Because the popular view is that it's quite hostile. Well, well, I've got to say, and I'll be very, very honest, it, it, it's, it still remains quite hostile. Um, you know, soldiers, regular soldiers see themselves as the cream. They are the absolute cream, and part-time soldiers are exactly that, part-time soldiers. So we have a lot of work to do to try and address that balance, uh, and we do have to look at legislation to support the individual in the TA and to support his employer. We have to look at how we resource our Territorial Army um, soldiers um, we have to look at the age limit. Do you think enough people are going to want to become TA soldiers, given they're going to have to commit more? 
Well, I, I, I've, got no, I've got no shortages of people standing at my door asking to be um, a Territorial Army soldier. A lot of them wanting to join the regulars. The regulars been reduced. They can't get in uh, because of the number wanting to join the regulars. So their next port of call is to the TA. Uh, and it's that business of making sure that we don't just recruit anybody, but we recruit the right calibre of man into the TA so that we have that capability. And right now, I don't think we've got that. To, be, to, to say as an infantry um, battalion that we're, we will recruit young men up to the age of 41 and expect him to do the same role as a man at the age of 21, it's just slightly ludicrous. So we really have to look at um, how we're going to resource um, the Territorial Army in the future. All right, Captain Doug Beattie and Colonel Richard Williams, thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's talk now about morale and welfare of those serving and their families who've been affected by today's news. And General Sir Mike Jackson, the former Chief of the General Staff, is still with us. Um, General, um, it will be a huge blow for many soldiers. What kind of reaction have you heard so far? Well, I personally um, um, haven't really uh, had an opportunity since the announcement to um, come to that to a sort of view. But we have been here before. There have been, sadly, redundancy programs before. Um, and nobody can in any way um, uh, try and gloss over what it means to be compulsorily redundant. Um, but there we are. Um, if you as, were chief of the general staff... Uh, as we heard earlier, uh, we have to get the army down by 20,000. Indeed, and if you were chief of the general staff today, what would you be saying to those people who've been affected who are getting bad news? Um, there's very little one can say, I think, which uh, for somebody who is compulsorily redundant, voluntary is perhaps another, another matter, um, which is going to sweeten the pill. Um, um, there's no way around it. You cannot take 20% out of the army without redundancy, and some of it, sadly, will have to be um, uh, compulsory. And no how, way around it. How sad a day is it for you? Me? Um, well, I'm, I served the army for 45 years, and it was twice the size it will be when I joined it, a little more, actually. So um, it's, not, it's not a good day. Um, I fully um, applaud, though, the Army's looking ahead to get it, get itself as well-structured, organised as it can be for whatever may come after the current campaign finishes in Afghanistan. The sadness, of course, is the, the personal cost which um, this reduction in the army, the regular army's strength, uh, inevitably brings with it. Christopher, um, that's it for today. Um, any more cuts to come, do you think? Uh, more cuts to come, more cuts in all three services. But let's, let's take one positive thing. This is actually quite a good review. It's something which they should have started thinking after the Cold War. And when I look at all the figures here, I think it's going to be quite a good army. Christopher Lee, thank you very much. My thanks to General Sir Mike Jackson, Colonel Richard Williams, Doug Beattie, Catherine Spencer, who I'm afraid we didn't have. Apologies for that. We'll be back next week. Thanks for being with us and bye-bye for now.